Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number 14, the book of Acts, chapter 5, continued. Amidst the incredible outpouring of God's Spirit through the miraculous works and deeds of the disciples, what we see in Acts chapter 5 is a rising level of tension and conflict between the followers of Yeshua and the local Jewish temple authorities. Now at first, it was warnings from the high priest Caiaphas to stop healing in the name of Yeshua. Can you imagine that? Stop healing! And when this warning wasn't heeded, it was followed with floggings. And in the next chapter, the tension spills over to the synagogue, and thus it's taken up by the population of Jerusalem at large. That is, at first, it was those whose livelihoods and status centered around the temple, the Sadducees, the, the, the priesthood, the, the uh, Sanhedrin. It was them that who had who had issues with Peter and with the believers. And interestingly, those issues were mostly about a perceived threat to their personal power and authority, although the sticky matter of resurrection also played a role. But then in chapter 6, we will see the synagogue take up the persecution of believers for mostly theological reasons that primarily interested the Pharisees. And these theological issues were less about the Holy Scripture and more about synagogue customs and traditions. Now from a broad panoramic view, we see that the spiritual change in believers brought about by the advent of Christ and then the subsequent empowerment by the Holy Spirit cannot help but affect the tangible physical world that we live in. The notion that our faith can be separated from our daily lives and behaviors and decisions and activities is not feasible if true and sincere faith actually exists within us. The effects of our salvation change everything in us. It changes how we relate to everything around us. Thus, while a political philosophy can indeed call for a separation between faith and state, in practice, for the true believer, this is an impossibility. This reality automatically brought Peter and the eleven disciples, as well as their followers, into unavoidable direct confrontation with the powers that be. Now, I don't recall who said it, honestly. But I once heard a person insist that if a believer isn't a pariah to the world, then we just aren't trying hard enough. All throughout the scriptures, we are presented with a mental picture of a wide, yawning chasm between the ways of the world versus those who put their trust in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. What has light to do with darkness? Yeshua asks of his disciples. Therefore, persecution of believers by the world is inevitable. 
And we shouldn't be surprised that when we come to faith, it not only involves incredible gain, but also loss in the form of relationships and perhaps other things that have meant so much to us in our past. But now these things are incompatible with our new life. Peter's admonishment is that since this fact is inescapable, why not consider it a joy if you're being persecuted, experiencing loss for your faith in Yeshua? Because in persecution and in suffering, there can be no better concrete proof that you are firmly on the side of divine righteousness and holiness. So, it's an irony that a religion of peace and love was born and will remain in confrontation, if not battle, with the world until the Messiah comes to take charge. This confrontation is what we're seeing in the book of Acts. And it ought to be what we're experiencing in our own lives. Since this is the case, then last week we discussed the thorny issue of what we should do when our government installs immoral laws and insists we obey them. And here in Acts, we find Peter making the decision that when God orders one thing and human government the opposite, our pathway is clear. Obey God. Let the chips fall where they may. This brought us to the matter of civil disobedience, which from the believer's perspective, I would define as knowingly and openly choosing to disobey immoral man-made laws in order to be obedient to the Lord. Now we're not going to review that conversation from last week, but I will sum it up by saying that the answer is that yes, if civil disobedience is our only avenue to obey God, then as believers we must take it. And that may well mean that we pay a price for it. That includes a loss of property, fines, perhaps going to jail. What I'm proposing is not hypothetical. See, it's not something that belongs in fiction books. It's here. It's upon us right now. See, a few weeks ago in America's Northwest, a Christian bakery refused to create a wedding cake for a gay couple. The local government is currently trying to put them out of business. In France, just this past week, a political leader has been indicted on hate crime charges for saying that Islam is a religion of violence and it worships a false god. I told you the story in our last lesson of a Canadian minister who spent three months in jail for teaching from the Bible about homosexuality. Not publicly, but inside the walls of his church to his own congregation. If if this sort of thing is not already happening where you are right now, it soon will be. So you better decide right now what you're going to do, how you're going to choose. Well, as we left off last week, Peter and his disciples have been arrested again by the Sadducees and the Sanhedrin for healing the sick in the name of Yeshua and for spreading the gospel of salvation and Messiah. And while they were in jail, an angel of God broke them out in some miraculous way, such that when the prisoners were found missing, prison officials found the locks were still intact, the guards still on duty. 
But the jail cell was empty. God had once again overruled that which man had decided, but it was against God's will. So let's reread part of Acts chapter 5. We'll begin at verse 17. If you have a complete Jewish Bible, it'll be on page 1366. Acts chapter 5, complete Jewish Bible, page 1366. We'll start at verse 17 and go to the end. But the Kohen Haggadol, the high priest, and his associates, who were members of the party of the Tzedukim, the Sadducees, were filled with jealousy. They arrested the emissaries and put them in the public jail. But during the night, an angel of Adonai opened the doors of the prison, let them out, and said, Go, stand in the temple court and keep telling the people all about this new life. After hearing that, they entered the temple area about dawn and began to teach. Now the high priest and his associates came and called a meeting of the Sanhedrin, that is of Israel's whole assembly of elders, and sent to the jail to have them brought. But the officers who went did not find them in the prison. So they returned and reported. We found the jail securely locked, the guards standing at the doors, but when we opened it we found no one inside. And when the captain of the temple police and the head priest heard these things, they were puzzled. They wondered what would happen next. Then someone came and reported to them, Listen, the men you ordered uh, put in prison, they're standing in the temple court teaching the people. And the captain and his officers went and brought them, but not with force. They were afraid of being stoned by the people. They conducted them to the Sanhedrin where the high priest demanded of them, We gave you strict orders not to teach in in this name. Now look here, you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching. Moreover, you are determined to make us responsible for this man's death. Kepha, Peter, and the other emissaries answered, We must obey God, not man. The God of our fathers raised up Yeshua, whereas you men killed him by having him hanged on a stake. God has exalted this man at his right hand as ruler, as savior, in order to enable Israel to do teshuvah, repentance, and have her sins forgiven. We are witness to these things. So is the Ruach HaKodesh, the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. And on hearing this, the members of the Sanhedrin were infuriated. They wanted to put the emissaries to death. But one of the members of the Sanhedrin rose to his feet. A Porush, a Pharisee named Gamaliel, a teacher of the Torah highly respected by all the people, and he ordered the men put outside for a little while and then addressed the court. Men of Israel, take care what you do to these people. Some time ago, there was a rebellion under Todah, who claimed to be somebody special and a number of men, maybe 400, rallied behind him. But upon his being put to death, his whole following was broken up, came to nothing. Now after this, Yehuda HaGili, Judas of the Galilee, led another uprising back at the time of the enrollment for the Roman tax, and he got some people to defect to him. But he was killed, all his followers were scattered. So in the present case, my advice to you is not to interfere with these people. Leave them alone. For if this idea or this movement has a human origin, it will collapse. But if it's from God, you'll not be able to stop them. You might even find yourselves fighting God. They heeded his advice. So after summering the emissaries and flogging them, they commanded them not to speak in the name of Yeshua and let him go. The emissaries left the Sanhedrin overjoyed at having been considered worthy of suffering disgrace on account of him. And not for a single day 
either in the temple court or in private homes, did they stop teaching and proclaiming the good news that Yeshua is Messiah. Through his angel, God told the disciples to return to the temple mount and continue to speak about this new life. The new life was referring mainly to the eternal life given to believers through faith in Yeshua. Now they entered the temple grounds at daybreak, meaning that their escape from jail had been during the night. No doubt they went immediately there. They had not returned to their homes yet. The temple grounds closed at dark. They didn't open up again until daybreak. And since it was morning, the high priest arrived to his post. He convened the Sanhedrin. It seems their first order of business was to deal with these radicals who refused to stop healing in the name of and speaking about their dead master, Yeshua. So they told the prison guards to go and get these men from their cell and bring them. Dumbfounded. The prison officer said that even though everything was secure and the guards were at their post, the holding cell was empty. Escapes like this just didn't happen. And especially when the guards had shown no signs of being derelict of their duties. In fact, there's not even a hint of an accusation that the guards had fallen down on their jobs. Thus the result was that the captain of the guards and the high priest were perplexed because this just, just didn't make any sense. But suddenly some unnamed person comes and tells the high priest that these escaped disciples are right back at the temple teaching the people. Luke doesn't tell us who this informant is. But no doubt he was in the employ of the Sanhedrin because he was aware that the disciples should have been in jail. And now, back up in the Temple Mount, they were, in defiance of the local authorities. So the captain himself went up with a contingent of Levite guards to the Temple Mount, and sure enough, there they were. Apparently, the captain went out of his way to treat these disciples respectfully. He didn't want to riot on his hands. I mean, after all, people were getting healed right and left. And those who were afflicted were anxiously waiting and hoping that they too would be healed. Roughing up the healers was not going to sit well. So, now again standing in front of the Sanhedrin, Caiaphas, the high priest and president of the Sanhedrin, began to interrogate them. Now recall that the first time Peter and John were arrested, they were let go because they had violated no law. But before they were released, the high priest told them they were not to teach or heal in the name of Yeshua henceforth. He has essentially made new law. And he had the authority to do so. And Peter and John, of course, were acutely aware of this. The high priest now reminds them of this so that no excuse of ignorance of the law could be claimed by them. But then the real cause of concern for Caiaphas slips out. Moreover, you're determined to make us responsible for this man's death, he says. This man, of course, referring to Christ. What this passage actually says is that you're determined to bring this man's blood upon us. See, bringing blood upon someone means to accuse them of unjust killing, murder. Shedding innocent 
blood, dam nahi in Hebrew, is a grievous sin for which there is no atonement in the law of Moses. This statement of Caiaphas about the disciples trying to pin the crime of blood upon him directly ties to a passage from Matthew 27. Let me read it to you. Matthew 27, verses 20 to 26. But the head Kohanim, the high priest, persuaded the crowd to ask for uh, Barabbas' release and to have Yeshua executed on the stake. Which of the two do you want me to set free for you? asked the governor. Barabbas, they answered. And Pilate said to them, Then what should I do with Yeshua called the Messiah? And they all said, Put him to death on the stake! Put him to death on the stake! And when he asked, Why? What crime has he committed? They shouted all the louder, Put him to death on the stake! And when Pilate saw that he was accomplishing nothing, but rather that a riot was starting, he took water, he washed his hands in front of the crowd, and he said, My hands are clean of this man's blood. He's your responsibility. All the people answered, His blood is on us and our children. Oh my... And then he released them to them, Barabbas, Barabbas rather, but Yeshua, after having him whipped, he handed over to be executed at the stake. Notice it was the head Kohanim, the high priest, Caiaphas, who persuaded that crowd to beseech Pilate to let the murderer Barabbas go and instead to crucify the innocent Yeshua. Let me say it this way. It was the chief religious leader of the Jews who insisted that the people convict Jesus and pardon Barba. So what were the common people to do if the head of the religion who's standing right there insists that it's the godly thing to do to choose this certain way? Thus in verse 25, when the crowd followed their high priest and carelessly said that Yeshua's blood would be upon them and their children, then the one who bore the most responsibility was Caiaphas. But now perhaps three months later, Caiaphas is furious and defensive when Peter tells him that indeed the blood of the Son of God is upon him. And for this, there is no atonement. There's no escape. The high priest isn't used to being talked to like this. So in Acts 5, verses 29 to 32, Peter answers Caiaphas' question about why they were back at the temple doing expressly what they'd been told not to do. And he says, we must obey God rather than men. Peter isn't using the words, of course, but he's speaking of justifiable civil disobedience, is he not? My fellow believers, he's speaking to us as much as he was speaking to that high priest. In today's world, we, and by we I mean you and me, we're being battered, we're being threatened with biblically immoral demands from our civil authorities and sometimes even from our religious authorities to do things that God expressly forbids. 
From gay marriage to homosexual ministers to a casual acceptance of a woman's right to kill her unborn child to insisting that we back the corrupt UN and a non-people called themselves the Palestinians. Instead, we are to boycott and in every way possible stand against God's people, Israel. We're not to pray at government functions. We can't let our children wear a Jesus loves you t-shirt to school. We must accept and embrace adherence to Islam as a show of love and tolerance. Peter is showing us the way to respond. He's showing us the way. But do we have the fortitude and the courage to do it? That will always be the question. I can guarantee you, if you do, you will be called backward, a hater, ignorant, a fundamentalist, and a heretic. You will. Not too long from now, I think the word terrorist will be added to that list. So far, I don't see very many who are willing to brave the accusations of men and stand up for what's right. Earlier in Acts 5, we read of believers who were too afraid to go and stand with Peter at Solomon's portico in defiance of the civil authorities' orders to not preach the truth of Messiah. So fear of the repercussions of disobeying people in authority in order to obey God, this is not a new phenomenon or challenge for believers. It's something we shall face nearly daily until we depart this earth or until Messiah makes His return. If ever you were looking for a brief summation of the gospel that you could tell your friends and family who won't give you anything but a few moments of their time, simply copy word for word verses 30 to 32 of Acts chapter 5. Just copy it down. I mean that literally, very literally. Write it down, copy it, reduce it in size, stick it in your wallets. Let's go through Peter's Gospel step by step. First of all, he identifies who God is. Kind of important. And he says, God is the God of our fathers. Who are the fathers of the Jews? The patriarchs. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. See, this is as important in our time, important in our time as it was back then. The peoples of the earth worship no fewer gods today than in Peter's day. So for someone to say that they worship God only has meaning when their God is positively identified. And the God that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob worshipped is the God of Israel, Jehovah. There is no other. This is why, to the shock and anger of many, I openly and firmly say the God of Islam is a false God. He is not the same as the God of the Bible. This verse, among many others, is proof of it. Islam says that their God is the God of Abraham and Ishmael. See, Ishmael worshipped the moon god 
And before God chose Abraham and separated him away, so did Abraham worship the moon god, along with a few others, apparently. The God of the Jews is the God of the Tanakh, the Old Testament. The God of Islam is the God of the Quran, the Islamic holy book. So Peter identifying the true God as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob makes a distinction between him and all other gods. The next point is that God exalted Yeshua, whereas Caiaphas and his crew had him killed. Saying Yeshua was raised up is meant both in the sense of resurrection and glorification by placing Christ at God's right hand in heaven. As I've mentioned before, God's decision about Yeshua was the opposite of men's decision. So he simply overturned the decision to kill Jesus by unkilling him. Now, how Messiah was killed also matters. He was hanged on a stake. Hang doesn't mean to place a rope around the neck. It means to impale on wood. Of course, what this is referring to is Yeshua's crucifixion. This matters because several messianic prophecies call out various elements of the Messiah's execution. We find these in Isaiah 50 and 53, Psalms 22, 34, 69, and a few other passages in the Old Testament. So Yeshua's death fulfilled the ancient prophecies in detail. And after that, Peter says Yeshua is ruler and Savior. That is, He's not only the Messiah in the sense of being the deliverer, uh, uh, being our sacrifice for sins. He's also God's chosen ruler over mankind. Christ has authority. And why did God make him ruler and Savior? Verse 31 says, I want you to look at that. Look at verse 31. It says, it is so that Israel would do teshuva. Hebrew for repent. I want you to stop and think for that for a minute. So that who would repent? Did God make Yeshua Savior? Who? Israel. So once again, the two covenant theology that the law of Moses is for Israel and Christ is for Gentiles is shot down in flames. In fact, notice something I've mentioned a couple of times. Peter has so far shown no interest in Gentiles at least as it relates to Christ in the Gospel. In fact, it's going to take a particular incident that is recorded in Acts chapter 10 before God gets the message across to a reluctant Peter that Yeshua is for all peoples, not just the Jews. And Peter says that we, meaning the twelve disciples plus others, are witnesses to all of this. They physically and tangibly saw these things with their own eyes. But finally, Peter states that God gives the Holy Spirit to everyone who obeys Him. Not to some of those who obey Him, and not to those who do not obey Him. In this context, obeying God means to welcome His Messiah, Yeshua, to follow His instructions. So the indwelling of the Holy Spirit is a 
key element. It is part and parcel of salvation. Well, let's sum up Peter's Gospel in seven points. First, God is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Second, Yeshua was executed by humans on a cross, thereby fulfilling the Old Testament prophecies about Him. Third, God resurrected Yeshua from the dead. Fourth, God exalted Yeshua and placed Him at His right hand in heaven. Fifth, Yeshua is not only Savior, He is ruler. It is so right to say He is King. Sixth, repentance of our sins that comes from knowledge of Yeshua is required for forgiveness of our sins. And seventh, all who believe and obey God are given the Holy Spirit to indwell them. Well then verse 33 gives us the response from the members of the Sanhedrin to Peter's Gospel presentation. What we hear is about what we hear about happens when people hear the gospel. They react in one of two ways to hearing the gospel. Either they are cut to the quick, they feel convicted and they open their hearts to it. Or they are cut to the quick and they react in anger and they reject it. That's how it goes. The Sanhedrin was so hostile to the good news that the consensus among them was put Peter and the disciples to death. That was their reaction. Well, he put the Messiah to death, might as well put his disciples to death too. The only thing that stood between the deaths of Peter and the disciples was a man named Gamaliel. One of the few Pharisees in the Sanhedrin. He was known at that time as perhaps the greatest Torah teacher in the Holy Land. And the Apostle Paul was trained up in Gamaliel's teaching academy. Gamaliel cautioned a much more measured approach to this problem. Before we discuss what he said, let's see who Gamaliel is. Gamaliel was a member of the most prestigious Pharisee family in the Holy Land. He was considered as unrivaled in his knowledge of the Torah. He was also known as Gamaliel the Elder, which helps us to distinguish him from a grandson named after him who goes by the name of Gamaliel II. Gamaliel II was part of the Council of Yavne that some years after the Roman destruction of Jerusalem finalized the Old Testament canon as we have it today. Gamaliel II also helped to revise the synagogue and and, uh, rabbinical systems more or less as it has come down to us in our time. So it's very important to our understanding of the New Testament to grasp that Gamaliel the Elder and Paul were products of the synagogue, not of the temple. They were products of the synagogue not of the temple. The synagogue, you see, was run by the Pharisees. And their doctrines and teachings revolved around oral Torah, also known as tradition. We're going to talk much more about this at a later time. Because we must understand that the same terms, such as the word law, can mean many different things 
depending on whether one is operating within the principles of the synagogue or operating within the principles of the temple. This is why, I might add, Paul trips up scholars and laymen alike in trying to understand his writings. So Gamaliel the Elder makes an eloquent speech to the Sanhedrin, not so much on behalf of the disciples, but rather out of enlightened self-interest, as well as personal religious doctrine. He takes the tack that before the Sanhedrin acts harshly, it should consider what happened to some other recent movements of radicals and zealots, and he offers two well-known examples. The first is of a man named Toda, who convinced people that he was a special person that ought to be followed, and no doubt this involves some sort of a rebellion against the Roman occupation. And about 400 men became dedicated followers, but when Toda was arrested and executed, his movement ended. Then there was the case of Judas the Galilean, who led another uprising against the Romans about 30 years earlier. Apparently the catalyst for, this, for his cause was the Roman census taken for tax purposes. But as soon as he was captured and killed, his movement also disintegrated and caused no further trouble. So the lesson, says Gamaliel, is that if a political or a religious movement is strictly a human endeavor, then when its founder or leader is killed, his followers will soon grow disheartened and fall away all on their own. His conclusion is that since in all likelihood this will be the same case with these Yeshua followers, then no action is probably the best policy. However, in the off chance that this movement really is God-ordained, then no action is also the best policy. Otherwise, the Sanhedrin would find themselves fighting against God. Very smart man. But let us also remember something else. You see, the Pharisees were generally sympathetic to their own Jewish people, whether radicals or ordinary citizens, and they were strongly against the Roman occupation. So while the Sadducees were beholden to the Romans, always cooperative with them, it was against the law of the synagogue that was run by the Pharisees to turn Jews over to the Romans. Now because before his speech, the Sanhedrin wanted to have Peter and the disciples executed, that would necessarily mean Roman involvement, since Jews were not allowed to carry out their own capital punishment. The Sadducees had no issue with that, but as a Pharisee and leader in the synagogue system, even though the thought, I mean, even the thought of turning Jews over to the Romans to be killed went against all of Gamaliel's convictions. Well, the Sanhedrin took Gamaliel's advice. And after the the deliberation, the disciples were called in, once again ordered, stop healing, stop teaching in the name of Yeshua, and then they were released, but not before they were flogged. Why were they flogged? Because they indeed were guilty of breaking the law. They did. They broke the law. They broke the civil law. The law they broke had been established just a few days earlier when Peter and John were arrested, plainly told they cannot preach, heal, and teach in the name of Yeshua. So some punishment had to happen or the Sanhedrin would look weak. Obviously the flogging was not extreme as they returned back to their fellow believers immediately afterwards. 
I mean, what a victory for the followers of Christ this was. They had stood up to the Sanhedrin. They had not given up on their faith. They would set the tone for years to come that believers were willing to suffer anything to obey Messiah and take the good news to everyone regardless of opposition. The complete Jewish Bible says that they were actually overjoyed as being seen worthy to suffer disgrace for the sake of Yeshua. The Greek word being translated as disgrace is atemazo. Atemazo most literally means shame in the sense of loss of one's honor. And among Middle Easterners, while the pain of flogging was certainly a major part of the purpose for flogging, every bit as important was that culturally, flogging brought shame upon the victim. Shame doesn't mean ashamed, like we think of it today in the West, whereby guilt is the, is the result. This isn't about guilt. Shame was not a feeling of guilt. It was a demeaning social status. A person who was shamed was looked down upon by his family, by his friends, by his countrymen. It was a very undesirable social stigma. See, because honor was the status that all people wanted to maintain. Thus, when one was shamed, it became that person's sole goal in life to do whatever it took to recover his or her honor. Different Middle Eastern societies vary a little in how shame was resolved and how honor was recovered. But often, this included killing the person who had inflicted the shame. Thus, today we'll hear of the term honor killing. Ever hear of that? Honor killing? See, this is a killing for the purpose of recovering an individual or a family's honor. In fact, shame and honor was the point of Christ's famous turn-the-other-cheek statement in Matthew 5.39. And the idea was that as horrible as being shamed was in Jewish society, one should be willing to suffer it for the sake of the kingdom of God and not lash out. Thus, if you were a Jewish believer, now that you know all this, you know, understand the context, what was going on politically, socially, religiously, if you were a Jewish believer and you saw Peter acting joyfully after his flogging, now in his condition of cultural shame, it would have caught you off guard. Man, what is he doing Thus the final statement that ends this chapter says that the disciples who still bore their flogging marks went right on teaching and proclaiming the gospel both in private, in people's homes, and in public at the temple. And it has a much greater meaning than it does to us modern day believers. This is because shamed people were shunned. They weren't invited into other people's homes. And shamed people hid themselves away. They certainly didn't go out in public on their own volition and then draw a crowd to them to boot, or they would have been publicly ridiculed. And yes, of course, 
they were continuing in their civil disobedience because they defied the court order to stop teaching and healing in the name of our Savior, Yeshua. We're going to begin Acts chapter 6 next time that prepares us for the story of the first Christian martyr, Stephen.